yeah. Hooray, hurrah, once again, the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, takes to the ether on the ethereal Everly Brothers. Fantastically, this is their biggest hit, and that was Dawn in the middle there. Dawn is swirling in the heavens, as are all their celestial melodies. Yeah. Hooray, hurrah, once again, the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, takes to the ether, this time in the enormous shadow of the Everly Brothers, uh, who dominated like few artists. I'd say Fats Domino, uh, Elvis, they had a giant rock and middle career. Ten years of hating each other, not speaking to each other, (laughs) and then awesomely another ten years of being on the road together and playing with all the greatest acts in rock. Can can we hear what Ray Davis and his brother Dave think about that? (laughs) Uh, my name is Gregorio. Oh, hey, looky here. It's Jennifer. Hi, how are you? Hi, good. Thank you. Well, it's so nice to have you here for the Proopcast. Uh, we're holding hands and holy hearts and enjoying each other in the fabulousness. I wanted to play you that one because that's from American Bandstand in 1960, the week it was a hit. And you got to hear Dick Clark say it was recorded in Nashville. They were taken because they're from Kentucky. Don had already written hits for Kitty Wells and stuff. Like, he was a teenage hit maker. Like, that's how boss wow. the Everly Brothers are. Then they signed with Cadence, and he took them to Nashville. So they didn't record in New Orleans. They didn't record in Chicago, like all the other rock bands, uh-huh. right? The early stages of rock, there's New York, there's Chicago, there's... There's New Orleans, Greg. New Orleans, like I said. They, but they didn't go to New Orleans. They went to Nashville, and Chet Atkins was their guitar player and arranger. So wow. they had super, super uptown you know, production from day one. Their producer was Arthur Godfrey's producer, who produced the hit parade and stuff. So uh-huh. they were all in the hands of these old hands, uh, later on, in any case, the awesomeness is they had so many great, great hits. And Felice and Bordlow, uh, the husband and wife writing team, who also wrote bitchingly Rocky Top, which I think I think the unofficial state song or maybe official state song of Tennessee uh, wrote a bunch of hits for them. When did Warren Zevon get involved? OK, so th- let's cut right to the chase. What we all want to talk about, and I know, is their breakup at Knott's Berry Farm. Um, so they'd been on the road together for ages. They even were in the Marine Reserve together in the early 60s. And you can see pictures of them in the Marine Seriously? uniforms. Oh, yeah. They went on Ed Sullivan in the Marine uniforms and stuff, right? <laughs> they did the Elvis thing, right? Like, right. They, they served. They're good Christian boys, right? Um, their dad was a minor, of, like everyone in Kentucky. And then he became a guitar player. And he had a radio show. And that's how they were musical and whatnot. So Don had some hits. Then uh, Bye Bye Love's their first giant one. But that one of all... Kathy's Clown from 1960, they're about three, four years into the career, is their biggest hit. For some reason, that one just dominated. Anyway. Well, the vocal and the arrangement. Oh, my God. It's such a great rock and roll. The middle part. Now, all of a sudden, it's New Orleans. The middle part mm-hmm. has a, the rock and roll part, but the other part is so, I don't know, Hills of Kentucky, that harmony, like you said. Um, so now they've been on the road a thousand years, and they're both kind of druggy. Uh, Don. Kind of. Yeah, Don evidently was um, Ritalin and vitamins in the daytime, barbiturates at night. Did you night. say vitamins? That's what it said in the Washington Post. I can only go by the many sources I've been reading. Let's just suffice to say pills, and like all great country stars, and uh, it, 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 it broke down. So 
they've been Warren Zevon fantastically was their keyboard player and I think musical director in the 70s and they were playing Knott's Berry Farm which if you don't know what it is it, there's a big amusement park here in California you've heard of called Disneyland and the big rival to it all through the 50s yeah. 60s and 70s was fantastically Knott's Berry Farm which all Angelinos and all Californians say Knott's Berry Farm mm-hmm. which it isn't it's actually Knott's Berry Farm thank, thank you for drawing that <laughs> But Californians say Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, Like it's one word. Anyway, they always had big gigs there, right? Like, for instance, I saw at Disneyland uh, Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods and Frankie Avalon. But both rather square venues. Oh, super square. Would would Knott's Berry Farm even be to the right of In those days? Absolutely. Like John Birch. What what we would call uh, right-wing QAnon now, in those days you called John Birch. John Birch Society believed that commies had infiltrated the government, that JFK was a commie. Remember all that? And what if you combine that with an amusement park? And some some singing. (laughs) And and Jennifer, you could buy jam. That was the big... (laughs) The the reason why it was not goddamn berry farm. Where is Smucker's on this? Did you and I ever no, I, go to Knott's Berry Farm together? No. Why wasn't there no. a Smucker's Berry Farm? <laughs> no, we did not. Smucker puckers. Take, <laughs> ride the giant Smucker mobile. Um, yeah, you'll end up in a, a, a giant pot of gooseberries. Um, <laughs> Knott's Berry Jam. My mother and father took me there then, I think, when I was little. And it was real that hokey so in the much. early 70s, right? Really hokey. Like, there was still dioramas and stuff of the Wild West. Like, it was cornball. And a little bit more like kind of hurt than Disneyland, right? Yes. Like they had gunfights. Gunfights. What? Right. So you'd be standing on the street in Knott's Berry Farm, and a dude would go, "Hey," and the other guy would go, "Like get out of my way," and the other guy would go, I, "I, this is my street, and you get all y'all get out of here." And then boom, boom, gunplay. So instead of being hugged by Snow White, no, no. And so because or a delightful animal comes by, <laughs> you you have gunplay. Oh no. <laughs> I've lost control of my my bodily functions because of Snow White. You, no, Snow White didn't come by. Two guys wearing cowboy gear and you don't get to wear a tiara no, and they, little mouse ears. To make it worse, Jennifer, they had blood packs and yeah, and what? blood capsules so that they could I, look like why they were if shot. I remained aloof of all. Do you of didn't know this? So it was Frontier I, Village did I feel it too. Sheltered. We've talked about Frontier Village, and there was another place called. Um, Legend City in uh, outside of Arizona and uh, out where uh, what do they call it now? There's Did a big you fountain. Legend town. City? Yeah, yeah, it was an amusement park, and they had a big dinosaur. Now you're just making things. No, up. I'm not. I've been to all these amusements. This is before. I mean, we've been to Winchester Mystery House right. together, which was. I mean, it's one of the strangest Californian spots because awesome. It, it's a, a woman being inspired by the legacy of the biggest. Uh, uh, Firearms manufacturer right, di- of the nineteenth well, century. Her her uh, largesse, her all of her wealth was based on firearms, and so she decided to keep building obsessively. And the house is bizarre enough on its own, but when we went there, they had decided to amp it up a little bit with. There were speakers, <laughs> the motion detector speakers around the. The the, uh, the house. The, the grounds. The, the grounds, exactly. I wouldn't say garden. And it, it, 
<laughs> you would hear Hi, I am the blacksmith. <laughs> I worked for Sarah Winchester for over 25 years. Boy, she was a strange one. She believed in the spirits of the dead. It was like that. And then, Hi, I'm the gardener. Even though I rarely ran into her, you were not to look in her direction. Otherwise, you would face dismissal. I, I thought that that vied with the fact that her uh, the room where she had seances had yeah. several doors, one of which just led to nowhere. Yeah. You would just fall yeah, off, you could fall three stories size. into the... Yeah, there was one that went literally death-defying. There was also glass doors on the bathroom so she could watch the so employees. watch the work... Because it was supposed to be constant work because I guess that was her, her pass on uh, getting all the money from the guns. She had been told by a psychic that the souls of the people killed by the Winchesters, rifles and pistols... Uh, were were forever going to live in torment unless she built this enormous thing and it was perpetual. So it became eight stories tall and then fantastically like Pompeii in the middle of her pride in building this giant thing, which by the way has mirrors, seance rooms, uh, double stairways that go nowhere, tiny little stairways, gigantic stairways. That she could no also one... look into the kitchen. Yeah, there was a glass ceiling, so she could look through the f- glass so floor. So many rather. questions, but she had more of a conscience and a worry about yeah, she cared what was that going she on people. with the source of her money than say the Jeff NRA Bezos. or well, no, I was well, just meant yeah, the, the you know the gun consortium. No kidding, or any of the gun manufacturers now. All the people who make all the guns that don't have to pay out lawsuits for all the infinite deaths at their hands. Wasn't it near the Rosicrucian Museum? It was. The San Jose is a great day. What is going on day. there? What well, is going on? She I mean, was, yes, you've got like maybe the group war. She's considered crazy. But you also have the Rosicrucian Museum and the Winchester Mystery House. Which are easily both doable in one day. And you could go get We're an really selling it, I awesome think. burrito. San Jose has got great Indian food and yes. great... Um, Mexican food. It's a wonderland of... Uh, in any case, it was a beautiful Victorian house, which is what makes it so great. So the mirrors inside and the staircases and the uh, uh, glass ceiling are beautifully wrought mm-hmm. and perfectly made. Like, she didn't spare any expense. And then the earthquake happened in 1906 and knocked the first two or three stories down off but the top ha- the of it. the rest of it remains. Yep. And it, they used to... At the, we'd go to the drive-in movie theater in the 70s to see, like, uh, Confessions of a Window Washer and Let's Do It, or whatever. <laughs> and, or, as my cousin Donnie and I, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, and Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. And we'd get shit-faced on, like, amyl nitrate and, and speed. And, in a car. Yeah, and beer and whatnot. And then... Amyl nitrate in a car. Look, we didn't have anywhere to go. We were, we were houseless teens. We weren't poor. We just only could sit in Donnie's Le Mans or whatever and watch. I remember watching Carrie with him. Oh, you sophisticates. So we're watching Carrie. And at the end of Carrie, spoiler alert, uh, Carrie gets killed and rises from the grave at the end and grabs the uh, hand of the people who tormented her right from the grave. I waited the whole movie. I'd seen it once before. And when it got to the very end, Donnie was captivated. He was quite high and he didn't know it was coming. And I grabbed his leg harder than any. And he bounced off the ceiling of the car and screamed at the top of his voice. Do you think that was wise? Do you think that was nice? It was so worth it. And um, in between an interval at this movie theater, they would always play an ad. They must have bought it when the album came out. And by God, they were going to play it every night. 
then add for it's only rock and roll by the Rolling Stones. So they go, the Rolling Stones. And then the tongue logo would come out and there was animation, like a, a thing would fly and shit. And it would go, I know, it's only rock and roll, but... And they go, on whatever record label they were on, on whatever record label they're on, the Rolling Stones. And they played this every interval. And then there was also a movie for like, let's all go to the, you know, and yeah. eat snacks and whatnot. And then the other thing that they would play, and it wasn't animated, it was simply like a crappy slides, where they would go, Sarah Winchester was married to the heir, to the, was an heir to the Winchester fortune, <laughs> to atone for the sins of their fathers or whatever. A psychic told her to build a, an endlessly build a mansion in San Jose, and then you would hear her voice. There was like a cameo of her on the screen. And she would go, keep building. <laughs> so, so not ever giving money to victims yeah. or... She didn't pay reparations. Charities of any sort. You would think Native Americans might have something um, to say about the Winchester... Just keep building that house. Yeah, key And so all of our friends, all through high school, anytime we were anywhere, we would go, <laughs> keep building. Because... It was, uh, yeah, shit, Sarah Winchester. So we've gotten a little off topic, but we're going to come From the rambling Everest. back here. <laughs> they were on stage at Knott's Berry Farm, this right-wing jam sales place. And by the way, my parents <laughs> took me there, and I think my mother bought I some jam. It, I, I really want them to describe themselves that way. Right-wing, <laughs> right-wing jam right-wing sales preserves. Place. Here, try Oh, look over here. It's a right-wing game preserve. There's a Nazi deer. Look at that raccoon. He's one of the proud raccoons. Uh, yeah. When amusement parks go wrong. Oh my God. Knott's Berry Farm was so right. So to, to sex it up for kids, um, to make it more family friendly, right after that, after I went in like 69 or 70, they brought in Snoopy and everybody. Charles Schultz sold them the rights to let them have. That you said there's no, it's completely counter. George Schultz and Snoopy do not belong. Or Charles Schultz. George Schultz and Snoopy is exactly what it was, Jennifer. You inadvertently (laughs) said exactly the right thing. George George Schultz. Schultz. Yeah. Who just passed away, by the way, at a hundred and something. In San Francisco. He was one of the great architects of the fascist state that exists now. (laughs) And he was also the CEO of Bechtel Corporation, Where would Dick Cheney's amusement park be. Right? In hell. Uh, it would be called the devil's <laughs> post hole instead of post pile um, because Dick Cheney is a post hole. Anyway, they, uh, yeah, uh, George Schultz and Jam, as Jennifer said. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, Secretary of State under, was it Reagan? Mm-hmm. Uh, and had a tiger tattoo on his ass, as I no. recall. No. Yeah. Who did he marry? Charlotte Mayard? He married yes. some rich society lady yes. in San Francisco. He was like San Francisco society for years. They all looked at him like, treated him like he was just a cowardly line in retirement, but he right. was really he, this mover and shaker. Like he pretended to just be, uh, oh, I'm supporting the ballet and opera. No, he was like, he was no, as powerful evil. as Dick Cheney. I mean, almost. Dick Cheney had the presidency. You know, I mean, like he was as powerful as, uh, gosh, almost any Secretary of State. He was really because Reagan was not making it happen. And I guess he wanted to be Bohemian Grove adjacent. He completely was. Which, by the way, I was telling a story the other day, and I've told you this one bit. I met a musician who did a gig there. My college teacher, Mr. Terrell, used to put on their shows. So there's a bunch of rich people. When I say rich people, it's the head of Bechtel. It's um, the Prime Minister of France. It's the head of uh, 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 Swiss Bank, Deutsche Bank. That's who goes to the Bohemian Grove. They pee under trees. They act like children. They get really drunk and they smoke cigars. And then they put on this show that has an owl and it's the burning of... It's got to be gaslighting. The burning of... 
worry or some idiotic thing. It's completely awful. Does so this Nixon play saxophone? So this is, yeah. They bring this, this, the musician guy who I'm talking to in San Francisco goes, I played the Grove because it was a Bay gig. It was about three hours north of the Bay And, um, how do you get, attend for that? You right? know, build a eight story house. And by the way, you were ushered into the gig and ushered out. You know what I mean? You didn't get to hang around the Grove and like check out the premises and stuff. Or if you did, you were in trouble. Well, that was for your own psyche. Well, there were pay phones there. You weren't allowed to bring a phone. Even in those days, rich guys had phones. And, um, and leaders of the world, which is what they were. They had a trilateral commission. It's a big new present. You know, those kind of characters. George Schultz and people. And uh, <laughs> there was pay phones so they could call prostitutes, you know, and do the evil things they were doing. Anyway, this guy's playing there. And he said, I brought it. I came in with a couple other guys. We're doing a gig. And he goes, Nixon comes in. And we're like, what? And he's like, no, Nixon comes in. And so we chat. And as you know, Nixon, very fond of music, played the piano, like Harry Truman, right? Bill Clinton played sax. Truman and Nixon famously played the piano. And pictures of them playing at the White House, even. And um, <laughs> and then the party really starts. That, well, the party didn't start till I walked in. Uh, and uh, the story ain't funny, so don't you dare laugh. Uh, the uh, he. Uh, <laughs> Blow, blow, blow with the gun. What is it? Pop, pop, pop goes my block, block, block. Uh, and on the block, block, block. Mama should knock you out. Uh, and he is meeting the band. And finally they say, may we have a picture with you? And he says, of course you may. And says to them, I'm a little uncomfortable just standing here with you since you guys are all musicians. And they rustle up a saxophone. And I said, like David Bowie, he holds it under his arm in the most awkward way possible. And he said, I have a picture of Nixon with a sax under his arm. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know who Nixon was, uh, he was president briefly in the 60s and 70s. And, Not briefly uh, enough. Uh, he, was, uh, he originated all the things you see that are happening now. Uh, the violent overthrow of the government, uh, the... Uh, um, Hatred of the poor, the uh, people of color. Sicking, sicking the armed forces and the police on the population of America, especially the underclass, to beat them down. Yeah. That was a specialty. Yeah. Uh, maintaining a giant foreign war was a different thing. That was different eggs then, but he did do that for Edger. Using the, uh, the youth of America as fodder for war. Right. And obviously, when he got in in 68, he could have won the war up in a couple of years. I mean, this is, again, apples and eggs, but he did keep it going a little while. Uh, well, let's not go into that topic quite yet, because we're going to talk about another war in a minute here. So they're playing Knott's Berry Farm together in 1973, and Don said he drank a bottle of tequila, and he was behind a lot of pills. And he got on stage, and Warren Zevon's recollection is, he said, I played with them for years, and I saw Don get up with pneumonia. I saw Don get up after no sleep. I saw Don get up on the road after many gigs. because they never acted anything other than professional. And that night, couldn't remember the words, and was slurring. To the point where Phil went, I hate you, and walked off stage. The, I believe the promoter came on and tried to get Don off, and Don refused, is my understanding, and um, carried on for a while, and then it all went to shit in a shit basket. After that, it was agreed that they wouldn't speak to each other, and uh, that lasted till 83? 84? Then they had a giant <laughs> comeback. Uh, Don had a hit with a Paul McCartney song. They went back on the road. They did a giant comeback thing in England. They opened for... Uh, Simon and Garfunkel for on their comeback tour like they they did you know they made That's it happen yeah they, they, they made it happen oh isn't it well speaking of combinations let's play this one awesome song by the Everly's and then let's talk about who they influenced in them all we'll... I 
I believe that's a chat on lead guitar there. And then, do you? I was just going to say, do you remember the, the we happened on the awesome documentary about them, and it's called Harmonies from Heaven. Oh my God, it's so good! And I think you can see it online. Uh, the Everly Brothers' Harmonies from Heaven, uh, the story of Phil and Don Everly. Whoa, they're pretty honest about everything, and also you get to find out Phil was kind of right wing and Don wasn't. And then there was that going on, too. Here's a group that was heavily influenced by them. See if you can catch their influence. That isn't the Everly awesome. Brothers. I don't know what is. You know, I was just thinking because of their father being a minor, them being from Kentucky, I was wondering what Bill Withers thought being hmm. from a mining town in West Virginia, if there was some kind of, I mean, obviously uh, you're making your own entertainment in those communities. He would have certainly been familiar with all of their records because they would have been playing on the radio through his teenagehood. Uh, and young manhood, the late 50s and early 60s is when... Do we know if they went to school? Uh, they went to school for a while. They were teenage rock stars. Is yeah. that school? <laughs> anyway. Uh, school of rock. Right. Don Everly is, uh, well, persistently seen each night, zooming over the world. And uh, let's uh, celebrate him always. Yeah, the, the song Paul wrote for him was called Wings of a Nightingale. Anyways. Um, can we celebrate the fact that our Madam Vice President is in Singapore? Oh, yeah. And she met uh, the first uh, woman president of Singapore. 
she was uh, there to uh, solidify the uh, foreign policy between the two countries. And they seemed really excited to see her. She was then on an aircraft carrier that's going to go help uh, evacuate Afghan refugees. Um, the photos, they, they gave her a, an orchid. Right. With her name, right? Yeah, the, the uh, Kamala Devi Harris orchid. Wow. Which is a lo- really lovely purple orchid. Um, it is so important, and we can't overlook the fact that, she, first of all, she's the first American vice president to visit Singapore. Mm-hmm. And... We have to continue celebrating whatever the the noise is in the media. She is our first woman vice president, and she's doing an awesome job. And I just couldn't be more excited to follow her progress. Her husband is on his way today to Tokyo for the Paralympics. Uh, Doug Emhoff is going to be there for that and it's that's just you know awesome i'd love to uh that she's so in control she's so boss uh the president of um uh singapore is uh halima yakob is her name mm-hmm. and there's a great picture of them today and it's amazing but just to see her reviewing troops and doing all the things that men do and there was a headline uh in the paper today one of the papers i can't remember which one that said she oh you were saying the bbc uh, that she was going on a charm offensive, and normally you would say, "Well, you wouldn't say that about a man." But let's let's even make, put it in clearer focus. She is going on a charm offensive because she is charming. One and two, you would have never said that in the last four years that anyone on yeah. anyone <laughs> on that team was going on a charm offensive. No. And now look at us—we're America again. We actually go to places and charm people by laughing and being part of the game. They gave her. An orchid is such a symbolic and beautiful well, thing. I'm right? not trying to trivialize anything. It is the very mm-hmm. essence of everything. How excited we were following the the foreign minister of Singapore, his Twitter feed, the uh, U.S. embassy in Singapore, their feed. They were so excited yeah. to have decency back. Someone who knows what they're talking about. Someone who's reaching out to build something, mm-hmm. you know, to to uh, reinstate uh, diplomacy Allies, around the world. Exactly. Alliances, yeah. treaties. As you pointed out, the first thing they did after this meeting was send an aircraft carrier to Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, it's not going to Afghanistan, no. but but it's adjacent. They're well. They're the going Gulf. to support yeah. the people being. Uh, evacuated. And by the way, um, despite what the press would have you believe, it is... My understanding is it's been a total failure. What what did you say to me today? It's it's the biggest... Airlift in history. In history. It is the biggest airlift (laughs) in history. Berlin. The White House Deputy Press Secretary, Andrew Bates, said today in 12... And this is old news now because this is from uh, eight hours ago. Um... In 12 hours, from 3 a.m. to 3 p.m. today, a total of 10,900 people were evacuated from Kabul. Since August 14th, we have evacuated and facilitated the evacuation of approximately 48,000 people. Since the end of July, we have relocated 53,000 people. 
you and I have both lived in cities smaller than that. Mm-hmm. That is a phenomenal number of people. Yes, San take, Carlos was the half it. the size of the amount of people they located when I was growing up there. This is amazing. It, it and really there is. There have been no American casualties. No. The Taliban hasn't attacked. They've abided by the uh, rules that were set. Everyone wants to blame them because there's this weird dynamic of the Republicans don't have to answer for anything, but Democrats are held to an extraordinary standard. Apparently, they don't want to focus on the fact that the previous administration burnt this to the ground, uh, let Taliban out of prison, made a deal with the previous administration. They fled because this all fell apart because it was the previous administration's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no easy uh, egress from a war. Especially, I, mean, I grew up in the military, yeah. and I just it makes my blood boil I, when Biden looked at the press and said, "Do you want me to send your daughter or son in to continue this?" I mean, people just don't seem to understand that uh, there is no easy way of dealing with this, and there is no focus on what the prior administration did to. Uh, inflame and uh, just trash the entire situation. Do you remember when he wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David? Oh, oh yes, I do. It was so shocking. It got lost in, in all of the other shocking. Oh, moments. the bounty on the troops yeah, in Afghanistan yes, yes. by the Russians. Exactly. So, yeah, the evil that men do is often turned with their administration leaving and the press having someone new to focus on. But let's not forget it. And also, like you say, it's really salient that he said, do you want me to send your daughters and sons? Because it speaks directly to how many more years, he says. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. he also said, the buck stops with me, I take full responsibility. He didn't say, I don't take responsibility at all. He said, the buck stops with me, I take full responsibility. Today, Jake Sullivan, security advisor, did a press, press conference with Saki from the White House. And they said to him, do you trust the Taliban? And he went, no, we don't trust the Taliban. No. We have no illusions about it. So no. they're not saying, we trust them now. We're going to get the... The way the press is casting it is like this was bungled. They don't want honesty. But it's not just bu- not bungled. And I'm, you know, I want to get crazy here. It's one of the great humanitarian efforts our country's ever done in the last... In my lifetime. Literally. Vietnam, also, we can't Biden, go into, but Biden's it was a way different thing. there. Yes. I mean, that's a whole other thing. He's the, the only presidents. only president mm-hmm. who had a child there. And, you know, it's... it's. Uh, By the way, the Trump kids would have been um, young enough to serve there. The war's been going for 20 years. Uh, by the way, I mean, the, the media didn't have this kind of frenzied focus on January 6th. Mm-mm. Or all the other heinous things that happened in the past administration. And by the way, Haiti... There, there is a humanitarian crisis in Haiti right now, and we're we're doing a lot there too. He's really jumped up and stepped in. Very, the thing is, they prefer the disaster of like Puerto Rico. They prefer those kind of cataclysmic events because it's so easy to just focus on the sensationalism, the cruelty, and the horror. And for him to be doing things like actually getting a bunch of people out with a minimum of uh, of fifty thousand, fifty three thousand people relocated means. 53,000 people who aren't refugees. So Well, and also, you know, it, it it overlooks all the countries that are involved in this. Everyone from Singapore, as you just... Well, and, and you know, there, there France, was a, Italy. a group arriving in Italy today. NATO, it's back. Yeah, exactly. And, 
and the Arab countries. There's loads of UAE. Everybody's... It's as though there. It's not so fun uh, focusing on an honest, pragmatic approach. Something that's working. He. The, not only are they getting everyone evacuated, it's going to take a long time. They're admitting that they are there for the criticism. If yeah. there's criticism to be had, they'll stand for it. Instead of everything else is someone else's fault, and we're just going to. Imagine if this happened two years ago, Jennifer, or three years ago, what the, the mayhem, how horrible it would have been. Well, we, we had traitors at the helm. Yeah. And that can't ever go unnoticed or unspoken of. I mean, the, the, it is essential. Uh, I trust the, the group that we have now in the White House. I trust them. You mean like to do the right thing for humanity as yes. opposed to... Just and serving undo, themselves and stealing to undo yeah. the horrible things that which were is a lot, which is what this is. You're right. Uh, it's an undoing, and undoings are messy. And to be honest, this one's way less messy than a lot of things we've undone ourselves from over the years, including Iraq. Um, in Haiti, uh, the government has sent a bunch of things. This is from the. I like to go to the U.S. Southern Command, Jennifer, when I'm just whiling away the hours. I also haven't told you this, but I have a ham radio in the garage. Hello, old bean. It's me. It's this Argentina again. I'm the, the old pipe smoker. I'm located in Lower California. Emphasis on the lower. Hello. Beep, 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 beep. Ham radio. Update on uh, uh, Haiti support. USAID. Uh, the, uh, USA, the USS Arlington. Uh, came with a surgical team, Marines, uh, helicopters, and landing craft. I almost read Hellos because they've abbreviated it in the military style. <laughs> uh, as Dick Van Dyke says in the FBI episode of his show, are those the Binocs? And Godfrey Cambridge is the FBI agent. He goes, what? And he goes, you know, the Binos. And Godfrey Cambridge goes, I don't know what you're saying. And he goes, the binoculars. Oh, you want the binoculars? <laughs> the binos. Hey, we dropped some hellos. Uh, ten helicopters uh, doing life-saving airlift. We're making fun of this, but it's a terrible situation. The UK and French ship supporting Dutch ship en route. You can look it up at the um, Southern uh, U.S. Southern Command. They have literally put the military into operation to do what the military is supposed to do in our hemisphere, which is You mean run... the opposite of throwing paper towels yes, at people the... in Puerto Rico? And by the way, Puerto Rico... It's never, part of the United States. Never got the mm. focus. Uh-uh. It and still doesn't have the focus. However, the money is starting to flow again a little bit there, as yes. opposed to before when they just cut it off. Jose Andres should get the Nobel Prize every year. And uh, he has a thing called um, the world's... What is that? The WC Kitchen is the... Central Kitchen. The world's Central Kitchen. Who, by the way, were at... Dodger Stadium when we got vaccinated. Right, they're everywhere. Like I was like, what are we doing in Arizona? They, they had a team in Haiti because of the prior uh, disaster yeah. in Haiti. They they were training people. Uh, that's the beautiful thing that they do. They use local teams, local chefs. Mm. They train people to be chefs. They they actually think about what people want to eat there. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, well, they don't give it's them kind of essential plasticky bologna sandwiches in a crappy wrapper, oh. which is what you get from any unthinking. You know, I don't. I don't think humanitarian people. I are was like looking that, at you know what, what I mean. they were serving. Uh, it, yesterday it was chicken and rice, right. and the beans were picked locally. They were uh, growing beans, and he's beautiful. They also feed loads of people. And the roads, you know, some of the roads are really uh, impossible. Yeah. And so they're using helicopters, and uh, they were even uh, they were using they were working with the USAID team 
because they've got helicopters mm-hmm. that Jose Andres's team does. Isn't that great that they can use their helicopters to deliver because food? Because a medical, a, a, right. a boat showed up, a, a U.S. boat. Yeah. I can't remember which one. Uh, this one. The Arlington. Uh, has shown up with a surgical team. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's wonderful that they're all working in tandem to to help these people. Again, I would like to point out and I'm going to sound like a right-wing radio show host from the 70s. Wow. But Could I have a little heads up on that? I, I'm always against every war. I was against Afghanistan. It was a real, total bullshit reaction to this pretend ephemeral. Osama bin Laden was a metaphor for this thing that we wanted to get done in the Middle East, which was to kind of blow up their infrastructure and really grab as much as we could, which is what I think the Cheney-Rumsfeld doctrine was, Wolfowitz, those guys. I wouldn't include W because I don't think W really talk policy that much. I'm sure he just signed papers and looked grave. Talked um, about baseball, maybe? Yeah. Oh, boy, that Nolan Ryan. I taste him. Uh, and he's... <laughs> Michelle, come here. I got some candy. Stay um, away. Uh, well, I'm never forgiving W. In any case, uh, uh, I got onto that topic there. And now well, where were you going? Now, but now, what was... We were starting... No, yeah. Afghanistan and Iraq. Um are the two great wars of the last 20 years. But in our lifetime, we've had Vietnam and all the other interscene squabbles, uh, Central America. The first time I ever wrote the White House was about Vietnam. Yeah. And I got a letter back. Mm-hmm. And a, hilariously, like a typewritten letter, you know, return address, mm-hmm. White House. <laughs> I was asking them to end the war. And I, and I actually got... I don't... I, I can't imagine... It, the, the previous administration to Biden's. Do you want to say how personal having, it was for you because of your dad was in the war? Well, I think I've said that before. My dad right. was in Vietnam. Right. Uh, and yeah, it was deeply personal. Everyone that I went to school with, uh, you know, kids on base, yeah. all that. I mean, it, it's deeply personal. Yeah. Uh, and I just, like I said, I, I'm against every war, but I want to talk about the good Americans are doing. Leaving Afghanistan is absolutely essential. It should have been done years ago. They would have probably not let Obama do it. I think they would have tried to cockblock him on that and say that it wasn't done. But 10 years down the line, Biden is able to manhandle it. And he really did manhandle it because the situation was yucky. They'd let everyone loose to plague him. And it, They've made enough deals that they're having this happen without too many hitches, which is just astonishing. And the giant effort to go to Haiti and send a medical ship and actually send troops and helicopters, all the things they need immediately. And they've had the roughest month. Their prime minister's assassinated. They've had devastating earthquakes. Well, I, you know, and that has really not gone. Uh, there hasn't been any kind of focus on that in American media. Don't you think there's still a backlash so against his them? His for- wife was uh, transferred to Florida. Mm-hmm. She was shot. Yes. And she went back because, she, you know, she felt that it was her duty to go back to Haiti as soon as she recovered. I can't even imagine. No, she's tough as nails. Um, they did arrest a group of people. I mean, they were, I, I think... Uh, most of them Colombian mercenaries. Do we even know what happened? Yeah, they're gangsters. Uh, you heard about it, of course. He was the president of Haiti. Um, Jovenel, how do you say his last name? Moise? I, I don't know, and we should look it up. No, I think it is. But there's a, a little grave over the eye. 
In any case, Please. he didn't deserve to be uh, assassinated, and it was an awful thing. We haven't really spoken on it, but I, the, the Caribbean... No, it's shocking. It really gets our left hand when uh, in the big wash, and Puerto Rico had to suffer way too much under the last administration, so I just feel like Haiti, because they pulled the only successful revolution in the Western Hemisphere against the slave state and actually got rid of their oppressors, that they've had to pay for it by fighting them a million times and then being the kind of the, the poor sister to the Caribbean. Everybody. Well, that's the thing is that there, there are history, uh, it, it always, you know, the fight against teaching real American history in schools is because... It's everything. It's everything. To know your history. I was looking up, because we're going to talk about Josephine Baker. Um, and so I was looking up about the Pantheon and who was there, uh, whose remains have been buried there. and The, the Pantheon in Paris. Yes. And I was... What, tell us what the Pantheon in Paris is. It's like a hall of fame of yes. French people, right? So it's like who... Uh, uh, you know, great well, the uh, second, prime ministers. Well, the second and... person uh, buried there is Voltaire. Mm. Um, there Never are, heard of it. Many politicians, many diplomats. Yeah. But what I was going to say is I, I looked up to see, because Josephine Baker is the first black woman mm -hmm. to be uh, reburied in the Pantheon. And the French even have a, a verb. It's to pantheonnes. Really? Yeah. Um, she isn't the first black person. Uh, the other black people are Caribbean uh, mm -hmm. politicians and including uh, the Haitian general who led the slave rebellion. Oh, right. Yeah. Toussaint. Yeah, uh, Toussaint. Uh, and there's that fabulous book about him, which I know I haven't read, obviously. I get a lot of my history from Raoul Peck's uh, Extermin Let's Exterminate All the Brutes. And, um, which off, is awesome. Off the back of what you were just saying... Um, and the Pantheon in Paris is where they're going to put Josephine Baker, who's not even Parisian. She is a... No, she's from Missouri. Yeah. She had an amazingly difficult childhood. And she, by force of will, by uh, her enormous talent, her awesome... In all the photos, she just looks like the life of the party. Oh, yeah. Um, she... She, uh, you know, is it too much of a cliche to say she carved out this space for herself, but she... she and look at her efforts right? over the years. But Coming I mean, from a humble background, she made it to the haute monde of Paris. Well, you know, and at a time when so many others, like uh, Barbette, the uh, trans uh, acrobat, mm -hmm. um, a brick top, who was a nightclub owner from America, who was black... Um, who was a friend of Josephine Baker's. I mean, they, they found a spot for themselves in France right, that the they diaspora. couldn't find in America. Yep. And Josephine Baker became a hero in World War II. She carried notes. She Oh, yeah. Even when she was ill, she would go on tour, uh, sometimes in North Africa, and she would have things sewn into her clothing. Uh, she was sending... Uh, things back and forth for the Allies um, uh -huh. at a time when uh, Coco Chanel was uh, a Nazi collaborator. Huh. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to laugh. Josephine Baker. It was like when you said George Schultz and, <laughs> and Amusement <laughs> Park and the Flume Ride. 
Um, Take the Bechtel Flume ride. This jo- one goes to Nicaragua. Josephine Baker could have been, you know, the only the delightful dancer uh, film star, but she was... She became a resistance heroine. Mm-hmm. She was given the Croix de Guerre, the Légion d'Honneur. Oh, yeah. Um, she Decorated. Yes, and she wore those medals as the only woman invited to speak at the Mar- March on Washington. Right. Um, Rosa Parks and another woman were also speakers there, but she was the only woman invited, and she yeah. wore her medal. And she came over from France. Yes. And talked and about the young people she met on the boat and whatnot. She... Sadly, she didn't live to be 70, yeah. which is kind of shocking. She, her last uh, tour, she, she had adopted a, what she called the Rainbow Tribe. Yeah. Kids from all different countries. And uh, one of whom who had a, a restaurant that's still there in uh, New York on 42nd called Shea Josephine. Um I think, you know, they, they loved her. She was just uh, this force. Um, at the end, she was having problems with money, so she did this this last uh, series of appearances in Paris, or not in Paris, in France, and it was uh, produced by Princess Grace. Which, which, she was a huge fan mm-hmm. of, of Josephine wow. Baker's. And uh, Jackie O. Yes. Produced this last uh, concert tour. And so she appeared. She was a huge hit. Many ovations. Five or so days later, she died. Wow. That's an astonishing story. Isn't it? And so for this woman, this amazing icon, to be this black woman, Mm. black American woman, uh, who didn't finish school, who was married at 13, to be given the honor of being buried at the Pantheon yeah. in Paris. With the good and the deal. great. Right, a, she's with, uh, I've got the page up in here, she's with uh, Voltaire and Rousseau and Hugo and uh, Dumas, uh, Dumas' grandmother, of course, from Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Braille and Madame, Louis Braille, yeah, Madame Curie, uh, Toussaint Louverture. Mary Curie's there. Where we talked about in the Pantheon. Absolutely. Oh my God! I hope they gave her a lead casket. Uh, well, she is. And um, the last woman buried there is Simone Weil, who uh, was a champion, a Holocaust survivor and a champion of women's rights and abortion rights. Unbelievable. Let's hear a little uh, Josephine Baker. By the way, I have that speech in the uh, in the men's club and on the wall. A guy gave it to me in Chicago oh, years ago. Baker's speech yeah, at the, the Art Theater. He had framed it and it's a picture of her in her uniform on the day and then the transcript of the speech and she talks about talking to the kids on the way over and why she did it because it's her duty. This is her jam. Breezing along with the breeze.
exuberance just right it just makes you smile when yeah. you see her also you have to imagine her in one of her wild outfits doing a wild dance because josephine baker didn't phone it in <laughs> It's so awesome that they're putting her in the Pantheon. A little bit overdue. But since we're on the uh, history tip, and we were, I was kind of trying to make a point about Haiti, which is that uh, I think there really is that kind of resentment against them, simply because they were able to throw off the yoke uh, and sort of been relegated. I said poor sister, but that indicates that they had some choice in the matter. Uh, Raul Peck made that awesome documentary that we've talked about called Let's exterminate all the brutes. Well, and he's from Haiti, isn't he? Very much so, and made a movie of that. Of all their revolutions. Minister of Arts there. Yeah, and and uh, uh, now an August filmmaker, and he recommended Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's Indigenous People's History of the United States. But before we get to that for a second, uh, James W. Loewen, uh, who wrote Lies My Teacher Told Me. Um, as swirling in the heavens. I thought he would get more play than this. I really did. I, I've read his book many times on the show. I think if you cast your mind back to the early 20-teens, there was a fabulous Thanksgiving episode where I read the chapter about how the Puritans stole bodies and raided um, Indians' graves all around the area. The pilgrims were terrible grave robbers, and they really, really had to pilfer to stay alive. They hadn't the slightest notion of how to um, farmer or tame the wilderness or any of that type of thing that white people are always ascribed with doing. The Indians uh, uh, had completely cultivated the entirety of the United States and husbanded all the animals and built forests and built plains mm-hmm. and made fishes and made mounds and had enormous cities and culture, religion, travel, democracy. Um, the entirety of the constitution, well, a good deal of the constitution is based on the, what do they always call it, the Iroquois Pact or whatever, that, 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 that was from the Northeastern Indians, and who all, by the way, had migrated there. So the idea that people didn't go from one place to another is ridiculous because all the Indians from Central uh, America basically went all over the United States and all of them, every, and Canadian tribes, yes. who, there was no Canada. So that whole blurry line is, in any case, white people found basically flourishing civilization and they recast it well, as... lucky them. Right. They recast it as a bunch of people were living in the woods and we had to show them how to do stuff. And it was like the roads that were uh-huh. built, including some of our major highways, are Indian trails. Um, the plains were made by the Indians. The plains weren't plains. They made them into that so that they could have the enormous 60 million buffalo that roamed the country. In order to sustain that tribe... It was required in the middle of the United States, all the way to the Northeast. The reason Buffalo is called Buffalo is there were Buffalo there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and when we were in West Virginia and we were on the mounds there, mm. that uh, Native American group of people, they were doing commerce up the river with Central America, mm-hmm. with Mexico, what became Mexico. Yeah. Um, they had, uh, what, 25,000 people? Mm. In that area? It was an enormous city, bigger than most of the cities in Europe. Uh, and, of course, there's the giant one in Mississippi from the 13th century that broke up that had, what, 30,000, 40,000 people and giant temples. And, you know... Missouri. As we talked about in... Uh, I thought it was in Mississippi. No. Uh, uh, the, as we talked about the West Virginia Mound, um, one of the facts that was we read about there, it's a million baskets of dirt to build this enormous pyramid. 
which required um, an extensive knowledge of engineering and an ability to make a giant group of people set their mind to an enormously pointed task that I'm certain had every type of significance to them as well. And if they were trading with those other uh, nations, literally people all over the country had turquoise from the southwest. They had shells from the coast. The Indians already had all that going. Mm -hmm. And um, the pilgrims came. In any case, James M. Blaine. So why him so much? Because he wrote Lies My Teacher Told Me and then a bunch of other books after that. Exposing Columbus, which is one of the hideous myths of all time. As you know, Columbus, did not only did he not discover America, he never even knew where he was. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get close to the continental United States. The closest he got was probably uh, Puerto Rico. And uh, he was teaching class. And once upon a time, before he became a historian... And said, let's talk about the Reconstruction. And everyone handed in papers. What does it say here? I'll actually read what he said so that it's not so horrible. Um, there it is. Yes. Uh, that happened. No. Here it is. This is it. <clears throat> what happened to me was an aha experience. He was teaching at Tougaloo, uh, black Tougaloo College in um, Mississippi, historically black college, excuse me, in Mississippi, and asked his students about the Reconstruction. Uh, you might better consider it a no-no experience. 16 out of the 17 students said Reconstruction was the period after the Civil War when blacks took over the government of the southern states, but they were too soon out of slavery and they screwed it up and white folks had to take control again. My little heart sank. And so that's what set him on the path to righting all the wrongs. Like Howard Zinn, but it's a lot more zesty because it's mm -hmm. almost a question and answer with you. It's a mm -hmm. syllabus. It's, so it's easy to read and really beautiful to digest. The things I learned from it, aside from the fact that the pilgrims were grave robbers, and that, of course, as many historians have pointed out, no wars really need to happen, um, is that Helen Keller was a, not only a beautiful child who learned to speak and write and, uh, and sign and do all those marvelous things, she became an enormous force in the world and was basically like the ambassador for peace for the entire world for the rest of and her life. And isn't it strange how that gets written Erased, out? erased. No one ever told me that. And so he was like, um, by the way, she didn't stop being a person after she was seven in the movie. <laughs> she went on to be a socialist yes. and wrote many books and was a speaker at many events. And don't go, how could she be a speaker? And don't how, be thick. How exciting is that to find it? And, and she met everybody. Yeah, she, the world. She really got out there and fought for people. women's rights, yeah. for, for the rights of the disabled. Blind and deaf people? Yes. Yeah. No, she. so I think he's a beautiful person for doing that. He's from Illinois, and his father was a doctor, his mother was a teacher and historian. Um, he felt a particular kinship with Tougaloo, where students bought and read books not assigned to them in courses, a rarity at Mississippi State, he wrote on his website. Um, the well, current debate, well, sorry, before he was an author, he co-wrote the textbook, which is now what we're talking about, Critical mm -hmm. Race Theory. And him and Charles Salas published Mississippi Conflict and Change to correct what they saw as racially biased information that the Tigaloo students had been assigned for a required ninth grade tourist on the state's history. Um, he'll open up your eyes and he's very easy to read. I'm just sorry that there wasn't a bigger hoo-ha about him because I think he's... Well, I think that, that there, there may be, you know... Uh, I hope yeah. there will be more articles. There, there certainly will be. I mean, it's so profound when you find out uh, where you are. I mean, for instance, in Los Angeles, knowing more about the Tongva, 
knowing mm. about what happened to the Chinese in downtown Los Angeles, the, the lynching, uh, knowing about your history is everything. Yeah. Well, they, um, California history gets whitewashed like very few. I mean, wow. You think the South has uh, nothing but secrets. The, 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 really? You, they England? Don't, they don't, yeah. Well, they don't teach you that uh, Indians planted the wine here. That Right. They were, the first vineyards were in yeah. downtown Los Angeles. It was a, a French man. And the people that tended the wine were enslaved Indians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to not get a lot of that. Except you're going to get it in this book, the one I was recommending. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Also beautifully put together. What's, what makes a great history book, Jennifer? I think if you can remember what you're reading while you're reading it, because it's so interesting, um, and that the person who's writing the history makes it presentable and doesn't do too much equivocating or bog you down with... I mean... <clears throat> There's citations of everything she talks about because she's a thorough historian. But also, what makes this so riveting on top, like reading James Van Loen or Howard Zinn or whatnot, uh, or watching Raoul Peck, is that you're learning everything mm-hmm. because you're relearning American history. So some things you knew, you know, as she, as she says in the beginning of the book, so we give the Indians credit for being in corns and canoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we erase the fact that we took all of their land and killed almost all of them, but they still persist and are awesome. And that doesn't get included in the, the mix. And uh, I think what makes the book so fantastic is relearning uh, what you think you've learned already. I've tried to relearn the American history I was taught, but I was really taught white people history you know I remember the names of our history books well that's why we have to prevent it from repeating yes yeah because I really was taught the Alamo was this heroic thing and that Columbus was the which he was a brave sailor we can say that Uh, was he a good person who was the exact right person to interact with the new world for the first time I should say not I think temperamentally you might have found a better person than him um, would it have been made any difference? No. A bunch of people were coming anyway. The the, the terror of mechanized medieval society was going to go global and nothing was really going to stop that, I don't think. And, um, at the beginning, we were talking about the Everly <laughs> Brothers. Yes. And, uh, and how much I want Phil's When hair. I think indigenous peoples, I think rock and oh, guitar yeah. and that documentary. Link Ray, who was also on their label. Right, Link Ray. Was on the Cadence label. I mean, you're really hard pressed in in the '60s and '70s uh, to find an American rock album that doesn't have an indigenous person on guitar. Well, they did invent it. Exactly, and it's essential to know the, our history because of things like that. Because yeah. uh, we were watching uh, Reservation Dogs. Which is delightful. Hilarious. Just delightful. And uh, one of the creators of the show said, oh, well, uh, we don't know if we can find anyone uh, in Hollywood to be No, it wasn't that the producer said it to one of the... Yeah, one of the creators of the show said that he was told ah. that he couldn't find anybody. And... You mean there's no Native American? He said, he said <laughs> we're going to go to uh, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. to the reservations and we're going to find people and huh yeah the reason reservation dogs is so awesome is one the people who are writing it have a feel and two 
they really went out and got indigenous people and they're all hilarious and the cast is delightful the situations you don't get there's never sitcoms about um native americans who are living and why because why? they're yeah and it's delightful why have we not seen this before this is you'll love it it's really funny what was the other one? Oh no we're not going to talk about that one but uh Re- reservation dogs is totally worth it i can't remember what channel it's on i think hulu or something yeah, it is hulu. but it's uh it really has um it's unique because uh, you're you're not getting a lot of sitcoms set in that world. Uh, no. Can I mention or any? Uh, Pfizer is now FDA approved, and there were, which is just phenomenal because a lot of people had that excuse that that was their excuse in the back of their you know right has that they were going to say well it hasn't been it's a little too soon I don't know if I can handle that vaccine uh-huh. and everyone else in the world wants to have yeah. Um, so now it's been approved, and it was, uh, I think, 340,000 pages that the FDA reviewed okay. about it. So that whole, like, well, it's just hurried and doesn't seem like But my that. cousin on Facebook told me. Yeah, not so much. So uh, there were two stories this week about black American women who got an amazingly large number of people vaccinated. One was this woman in San Francisco, Felicia Thibodeau, and she works at a a community center in Ingleside. And she just talked to people and drove them to uh, Mm -hmm. places where they could get vaccinated. I, I listened to one of her interviews where she said a guy, a young guy, she's got lupus and she's, uh, and a 49ers mask, may I point out in the right. photo here. And so she, you know, she understands what's uh, at stake. And she said a young guy walked by and he said, well, I just don't know. And as a black man, mm-hmm. I'm not sure about taking this. And and she just talked to him. And and he came back apparently a couple days later and said, okay, now I'm ready to. Mm-hmm. And so it... The fact that there's a a woman like her that's willing to put in that time yeah. and she knows what's at stake and that she's really trying to get people. She's actually driving people to the places that she, they can get vaccinated. So far, she's convinced 1,270 oh people in San, San Francisco. And the other woman... Uh, and I, have I think no, we saw her on TV the other night. The other woman you're talking yeah. about, because she's in Alabama, right. which is a woefully undervaccinated. Her name is Dorothy Oliver, yeah, and she is in a, a small town. We we saw a, 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 a magazine piece about her the other night, and following her on her rounds, and she's been unbelievably diligent about it too. Right, and and she's gotten uh, I think ninety percent of her town vaccinated. Yes, for it's, it's real. astonishing uh, uh, in the little town she and, lives in. And she said it was just by being nice, which is you know disingenuous because I'm sure it's because she is a force of will. I was going to say authoritative. Yeah, that. Um, is is getting people down there to to deal with what they need to deal with. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, where, how do you convince people at this stage that don't want uh, something that I, one thing that I thought was really clear was um, a black woman said mostly 
if there's something afoot in American healthcare, it's, it's denying healthcare from mm-hmm. black Americans. Yeah. This is not something that's being denied. This is for everybody and it's free. The first time I can think of it in my lifetime. Right? Next to the polio vaccines when we were little. Yeah. It's And everyone can get inoculated. It's and by the way, changing. not to be a bummer about all the anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers, but a million people a day kind of now are getting vaccinated and we're up to, what do we see on the uh, tonight? 70% of the country's had at least one shot. Yeah. So we're there. Yes. So we're not the, all the way there, but the goal line, you know. It, it, it was exciting to read that in, in France, people have a passport. Yeah. They, they show their, their COVID uh, vaccination result. And that's how you get into restaurants, museums, mm-hmm. theaters. And uh, I was reading John Litchfield online, and he said that he, he was traveling he around. Right, he, he, he lives in France. And he was traveling around France this August, as one does. And he said he didn't see anybody arguing about it. Yeah. This is what you do. You, you wear a mask. You have your passport that shows you have been vaccinated. And this is how we're going to get out of it. Everyone has to be yeah. vaccinated. Have you seen the sign? It's in several. It's in bars and restaurants. Uh, and it appears online all the time where it says, uh, yeah, you have to wear a mask. No, I don't care about your reasons. Fifty dollars if you don't wear a mask. Seventy five dollars if I have to hear why. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I think that, that we can't coddle anybody anymore. I don't want to hear that they feel hurt or that they haven't made up their mind. It's really a matter of life and death. And the people who aren't going to do it and are going to be crazy about it. You know what? You guys just keep on keeping on. I don't think... I wouldn't engage a lot of them because I don't know how. But then at the end, you know, as we've discussed on the show, Jennifer, facts have a nasty way of catching up with everybody. And there's a fact, and it's called the the virus. And you can do what you like and not wear a mask and run around and yell at children and haunt hospitals and go to school board meetings. Which, by the way, no one ever went to a school board meeting before this. Do you think there were any full school board meetings? No, but that's a, that's a really vile... Uh Republican tactic. Yep. They understand that. They understand that no one, the only way they can win now is by doing something underhanded, like attacking people at a school board meeting, like having a baseless recall of a brilliant uh, governor in mm-hmm. California. I mean, why would we want to recall a Democrat? Who won on a landslide? Yeah. Also, he's done, uh, you know, again, everybody always here equivocates with the love him or hate him or whatever. I don't really care about what your feelings are for him. I, I quite like him and think he needs a chance to do a better job. Um, he did a really good job holding down a state with 40 million people and launching the vaccine. Um, has he done everything perfectly? No. It's, he's, in essence, kind of the president of a country. Right. Which is a really difficult... It's not like being the governor of South Dakota. Also, by the way, during uh, the protests, during the police going mad, mm-hmm. during the wildfires of last year, uh, this is... The wildfires of this year. Right. But, I mean, it's... Which was the third worst yeah. in history? He's I had think? as much on his plate as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I mean, it's really been constant fun. For him, through the whole, as soon as he became governor, it all came crashing down. And I think he's, 
you know, really people love to hang the French laundry dinner on him. And it's just this I, hilarious. Yeah. I mean, we've had a drought. We've had a <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. And everybody's gotten uh, giant stimulus checks. Stimulus checks. He's he extended the. The state didn't go under, by the way. He, we made it. For he issued a, year. a mandate. He yeah. issued lots of things before any other governors. And if this state goes under, the, state. Um, the country goes under. So let's be honest about yeah, that. Yeah, thank it's you not, very much. Uh, so, if you're out there listening in a smaller state, I know what you're thinking, and I know I hate us too. I hate, I, us more, I hate us more than you do. I'm going <laughs> to um, go buy some dates. Can I just say, please, if you live in California, post your no. How am I supposed to vote on, on this? No on the recall. Do not look at anything else. Put it in the envelope. Put your name on it and put it in the mail. And that's it. That's all you have to do. Uh, yeah, I don't even know that you have to put your name on it. But you do have to. Uh... On the outside of the envelope. Oh, do you? I, uh, I use someone else's. Oh! You have to sign it. It's a blue or black. Oh, that's right. You sign the back. You <laughs> blue or black pen and only circle, uh, fill in this blank that says no and leave all the other stuff. Uh, you can read through who they are, but don't write anything in. It really confuses the issue. I think the big overarching point in this one is that democracy is trying to be undermined over and over again by white supremacist Nazis. I don't mean to say it like in a glib way, but that's what they are. Well, they and, wouldn't be able to win an election in California. This is how the guy they're with trying the bear. to, right? <laughs> they're, they're trying to go about it in this underhanded, yeah. crazy way with a recall. They couldn't and, win the last three elections. And there's like, you know, a, a couple of people that have financed the entire recall. Mm -hmm. One of whom is the worst Literally the worst real estate developer in Los you can Angeles, say his name. Jeff Palmer. Yeah, and he builds Italianate buildings that are ghastly, and he's a huge Trumpkin as well. Mm -hmm. And um, they just don't want taxes or anything like that. Gavin Newsom is pro-choice. Gavin Newsom is really is trying to do fix problems and stuff. He is liberal as you want. Let's go back and talk about how he was the first mayor to really sanction gay marriage and go with that. And Kamala was, of course, DA then. Mm -hmm. And that's why they go back so far. Yes. Uh, um, in any case, just vote, please vote no on that. And please get vaccinated. And you, I think it's a good time now to work on your cousins and uh, uncles and whatnot who are hesitant. Because I think they're seeing all the right-wing talk show guys croak one after the next. And it literally is a dozen or more well, now. We, it's hard to keep track of how many anti-vax people have died in the last right, few months. The right-wing uh, talk show hosts. Yeah. And also um, nurses. Seeing nurses not get vaccinated. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking because this is something that should be de rigueur. It shouldn't be something that is, uh, oh, I, you know, I have second thoughts about it. No. When I was little, did I have second thoughts about getting a, a measles vaccination? Uh, no. Uh, no, we all wanted it. Also, I think the Supreme Court wrote a decision, I don't know, a hundred and something years ago about smallpox and how it was okay to enforce Everyone getting the vaccination. Let's yeah. talk about him and then let's do your old buddy, Jack. All right. Um, one of the awesome things that's happened is we know that uh, Deb Helen is our Secretary of Interior, the first indigenous person right. to be the Secretary of Interior, which is just like, oh, God. Can you believe it? It's, it's just heartwarming. So... It's the first step in a long trail. Right? So this week, for the first time, a Native American 
has been nominated to be the director of the National Park Service. Uh, President Joe Biden nominated Charles Chuck Sams to be considered by the U.S. Senate. If confirmed, he will be the 19th director of the National Park Service. Uh, he will be the first. Uh, his boss will be uh, Secretary Deb Haaland, who's Laguna Pueblo, who made history. Yeah. And he will be the first indigenous person to be the head of the park service. Wishing not the first. Which is phenomenal yeah. because it's like this is their their land. I was going to say, so, they might not call it national parks. Right. Um, his long list of roles include president and chief executive officer of the Indian Country Conservancy, executive director of the Umatilla Tribal Community Foundation. He's a Umatilla mm. uh, tribe member. He was born on a reservation. Executive director of the Community Energy Project. So many other things. He's overqualified yeah. to be in this role. And he's someone that people are very excited for him to have this position. You, might, you think he might have a, a an actual feel of stewardship and being a custodian of the what was going on as opposed to yeah. selling off all the parks for... What was it? They can shoot grizzly bears in their lairs and all that jazz that the forty-five every, did. Every day was a nightmare. Right, we're going to hunt day. buffalo again, and we're going to do this and that. Uh, speaking of buffalo, um, my shows are coming up, <laughs> and uh, I have early American features. I look like a bison. Uh, we'll have already shown uh, Mr. Hulu's holiday by the time this airs, and it went really well. Jennifer chose that one. It's a classic. <laughs> by the way, Mr. Uh, Jock Tati, who directed that. Um, his next picture, Mon Uncle, was Best Foreign Film when it came out. <clears throat> we'll be back on September 22nd with The Lady Vanishes by Alfred Hitchcock, which is a terrific thriller. And you'll really like it because it has evil Nazis and crafty, crafty surprises. <laughs> uh, and I won't tell you, but uh, spoiler alert, but it really is a cracker. And it's really funny, too. Super sexy. There's a hot couple in it. There's a, 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 an unbelievable heroine. Uh, I'll be doing stand-up uh, Friday, this Friday, the 27th, 5 o'clock, my time. That's Proop's time. Uh, you can go to Ticket Taylor or a Nowhere Comedy Club or gregproops.com, easiest of all, and you'll see a giant thing for it, a link, I think they call it, and a big photo of me. And then I'll be in Colorado at the uh, Pikes Peak Avenue at the Parker, the Pace Center in Parker, outside of Denver. Uh, get out of Denver, baby, go. That's what Bob uh, Seeger on the Silver Bullet Band Um and I always try to quote Seeger, if I can. <laughs> I know it's late. I know you're weary. I know your plans don't include me. We've got tonight. Why don't you stay? Uh, September 17th. That's at 7, I think? 7.30? And that's a live stand-up show. That'll be the first stand-up show I'll have done in front of an audience. And since February last year? Uh, yeah, remember I did, I, was, I did a few gigs. I did a stand-up gig in Florida. And then I came back, we went to the city, and, or, and then Florida, and then we went to, that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was last March. September 17th, come and join me. If you live in Denver, please. Thank you. Uh, who's live? Goes back on the road. Uh, Joel's in Ireland this week with his family playing golf. Look at him. Right? Look at him. Oh, your feathers did, and your mother's did, and your feathers did. Uh, and then Jeff Davis is staring very lovingly at Ryan Stiles there. He drew a heart around the two of them in this photo <laughs> and posted it on his Instagram and just wrote the word, just wrote the letter L over it with a pink heart. <laughs> Apparently Jeff and Ryan are going through something I wasn't aware of. 
super sloshy and uh than me so we'll be on the road with and bob Durkouch, our musical director eating the Durkouch of the day every night we start september 29th in northampton mass and we go across the entire northeast that includes maine boston whatnot new york Terrytown. no we're not coming to new york city then we're going to rochester minnesota the mayo clinic uh, Sioux City in Ames, Iowa, and this is my favorite part on the poster. You're not actually playing the Mayo Clinic. No, but we're Mayo Clinic adjacent. <laughs> and the hotel we stayed at last time was great. The ro- all the rooms have like, in, in case you need to spread out. Let me put it that way. It's great. Uh, Springfield, Illinois, Evansville, three nights in Royal Oak, Cincy, Ithaca, Buffalo, Rochester, Greensburg, PA. Someone was like, if you guys are playing Greensburg, I got to go. Yeah, you kind of do. And it's not Greensboro anyway. It's Greensburg. And then Toledo, Chicago on November 2nd. I'm really looking forward to that. Grand Rapids on November 4th. Akron, Indy. St. Louis, KC, Dallas. Then we come to the West. Anaheim, Tucson, Mesa, Santa Barbara. Arroyo Grande, Escondido, Lancaster, Clearwater. And then Florida in December. And then on the road next year forever and ever. Whoslive.com, whoslive.com, whoslive.com. Um, don't ask me for coming to your town because we are. <laughs> mm. And if you don't see it, your town listed, we're not done booking dates, you guys. So we have loads of dates that are happening next year. They are not booked yet. That is why you do not see them. Um, but people have already gone to me. How come you're not coming to Canada? There's like 10 dates in Ontario, maybe 12. And then one in Alberta, one in Edmo. So we're coming. And yes, we're going to come back to BC. But that was the last place we played. And then, of course, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas with Danny Elfman. John Cherry uh, at the stick, as it were. Danny Elfman will be singing his role as uh, um, Jack Skellington. Skeleton Jack might catch you in the back and scream like a banshee make you jump out of your skin. This is Halloween. Everybody scream. Won't you please make way for a very special guy? Hanan Jack is king of the pumpkin patch. Everyone hail to the pumpkin king now. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. <laughs> pumpkin scream in the dead of night. Uh, and that you'll get to hear me do that song. And you did nothing to deserve that. And I did it anyway. October 29th at the Bonk of California Stadium. Why is it the Bonk? Because it's the B-A-N-C of California. The Bonk. We're in Montreal. Montreal. Uh, it is officially listed as Disney, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, live to film. This is how John does it. Welcome to Disney's Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. This tonight will be presented live to film uh, with a full orchestra. And now to sing... Jack's Lament, the lovely Danny Elfman. Now, he introduces everybody like that. Now, Ken Page. Uh, And then not to me. October 29th, Nightmare Before Christmas Live. It's really, really bitchin', McChicken. It's a giant, giant movie screen. It shows the movie. We sing over the movie. Danny sings his songs. I don't know if Catherine and Ken are there. That hasn't been announced yet. And... uh, we, it's a live orchestra with a hundred million pieces on stage. And I'm going to wear Fez. So there you are. And then join us next year for all that jazz. Next month, I've got a podcast on the 24th uh, at Nowhere Comedy Club. We're doing the film club on the 22nd. I've got the gig in Colorado on the 17th. And that about wraps that jazz up. 
Here, jump into your, let's get to some poetry here while it's all, while we're all in that space, man. Well, the essential uh, poet, Jack Hirschman, has rolled on. Um, essential to everywhere, but San Francisco especially. He was poet laureate in San Francisco. Wow. Uh, and the, I have to find the, the quote from... Uh, didn't one of the papers call him Marxist poet? <laughs> well, amongst many Lawrence, other things, Lawrence described him that way. Um, he said when he was he was uh, given the honor of being San Francisco poet laureate. Philosophically, I'm an internationalist who knows that neither homelessness and poverty, globally and specifically here in San Francisco which the mayor is much concerned with, as well as war and violence, will ever and until unless the wealth of this world is redistributed and or appropriated for the benefit of all according to our needs as human beings. All of my poetry and intellectual expression is, in one way or another, directed to that end. And since I believe that all human beings are poets, in fact, and the writing of a poet is the most powerful action given to humankind because unviable and unsellable in essence and because a child of five years and man or woman of 70 years in the act of writing a poet a poem evoke the quality that is love at the heart of the world i write to unfold the future of that equality with all my brother and sister human beings the simplest thing in the world imagined three lines thousands of leaves of grass of our own human bard Millions of variations throughout the world, even unto intricate rhymes, hip-hopping down the street. Uh, the simplest thing is the greatest weapon against the chaos, the fear, and war. That's so fantastic. Right? So you knew him. I mean, I met him. He you was, guys did a show he together once. He was a once. pal, and he, he showed up everywhere. He was just delightful. He was someone that wore his... He didn't have to tell you he was a poet. He described being a poet with his very being, with his actions, mm -hmm. with his uh, daily activities. I remember seeing him get off a bus and he had pamphlets. He was always with the political pamphlets. Uh, last night I was talking to Gent uh, about his, him. Who is Gent? Um, well, my dear friend Gent, who worked at City Lights for years and was talking to me about uh, he and his husband would drive Jack uh, up in about North Beach on his rounds because he was always like in uh, Michael Douglas's character in Wonder Boys with this giant manuscript right. that his wife Agnita described as a doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> a doorstop? A doorstop. That he was always uh, with manuscripts with a book yeah. with a poem in hand that he was he lived his life as a, a poet he was reading last wednesday night he read the week before saturday at a memorial for uh, an also former san francisco poet laureate and co-founder of glide memorial church janice Murakatani. yeah um he swirled away minutes no, before yeah. an interview. I mean, wow. the man, uh, uh, we were, Jen and I were talking about, the man never missed anything. I mean, he was just, uh, there was a, a young graffiti artist 
uh, and in the 80s mm-hmm. and Kenneth and Jack and Kenneth and I were in an art show and Jack showed up with a blind woman who was a painter Yeah, and he knew Kenneth too who was a graffiti artist from the mission and it was just like he knew everyone and he was that person that was always making the rounds he was always uh, he never missed much the fact that he was doing a reading on Wednesday Mm -hmm. um, I just thought that was the most beautiful thing because he was someone that uh, he never for someone who was so political I don't remember him ever arguing I've read about him arguing with people, but I never saw it. And I never saw him proselytizing or forcing his uh, pamphlets on anyone. Um, I saw him uplifting others. Mm -hmm. He was always celebrating other authors, other poets. And as Gent said to me last night, he he was uh, always the one to celebrate them home. And we talked about whether or not he thought about what that would be like for him. And we decided no, Mm. because he was such a lively person that he had found uh, a woman in 1999, a Swedish poet who he married and they, how old was he then? Right. And he, they, they would, They had their rounds of going to flamenco dancing that they had, you know, they would go to uh, poetry readings. They would be always in support of others. I mean, it was just a joy today for me to look at photos of him out and about. Um, He was at, uh, the last time I saw him was at Lawrence Ferlinghetti's 100th birthday party. And he was with Michael McClure. They were sitting together reading at City Lights. And the first time I remember meeting Jack, and I'm trying not to get emotional, he turned and very casually pulled a book from the case behind him and handed it to me and said, Oh, have you heard of Paul Salon and at that time I said no honestly I hadn't and after he left I realized he translated the book and he was somebody who was uh, not uh, ever well off he was somebody that uh, when I knew him was living uh you know, I, I don't know, kind of some strangers living maybe above Cafe Trieste, the the famous uh, cafe mm-hmm. in North Beach. And uh, he had been a very uh, important professor at UCLA. And he was one of the first professors at UCLA to, to really lecture on uh, surrealist literature, poetry, um, to make it seem important. And he lost his job, as far as I know, because he sheltered men who were going to be drafted. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it was because they needed an A grade, and he never gave anyone less than an A grade. <laughs> so when they looked he, at his, so yes. at the end of the year, everyone got yes. an A. Yes, and he couldn't hide that. Right, and and he it, it radicalized him. Yeah, he then moved to San Francisco, and he became uh, this. This character, but he threw off academia, didn't he? Yes, but uh, but a lot of people would have been. I mean, then they certainly were, and in, in in and around the city lights environment, mm. pedantic or you know, uh, unkind or obstreperous. He was never that person. Mm. He was always uplifting other people. He was always celebrating poetry and. He was always the life of the party. He was a fun person. Um, last night, Jen said that he and his wife would go dancing mm. and that they had a flamenco group that they would go and hang out with. Um, I love that his wife, Agneta, who is a Swedish poet mm -hmm. herself, said that he he said, oh, well, she moved into my one-room place. And she said, um, no. They moved into her place, right. which was bigger. <laughs> he didn't have a place. Right. But he did. He yeah. did. But she had a better yeah, place. of course. But he was just, he was someone lovable. He was kind of larger than life without taking over. He just seemed like a real egalitarian kind of right? supportive guy. He always was. And preaching love, too. If you're, everything's and, supposed to be so Marxist. And never. Certainly on the love Never bra bragging about anything, he would go from this zone where he was taking the bus with pamphlets and, you know, maybe could look into some dentistry. Yeah. To, he would go to Emilia Romana in uh, Italy and be treated like a king. Mm -hmm. He he went to Italy uh, almost yearly, right? And was treated like the poet king that he was. He spoke how many languages? Nine. Oh my god! He translated right. in nine languages at least. So yeah, I mean, he was just it, it, he's somebody that uh, it pains all of us that knows that knew him that that he's uh, absent, but. I can't believe that he was he was in the alley for Lawrence's memorial. Mm -hmm. He was always uh, the person that would give the memorial poem, and I think you found the the birthday poem that Diane de Prima. I did. Shall I read a couple lines of it? Yes. Diane de Prima, of course, is uh, another poet who they put in the beat school. Uh, I don't know if Jack Richmond's a beat. No, he's sort not. It's a beat little adjacent. Young, young for that. Uh, here's the last few lines of the poem or uh, verses. Um, Jack, sure, I'll feel better if I just drink some vodka. Jack telling me to give up dentists and grow a mustache. It's cheaper. You were talking about his <laughs> dentistry. Jack Hirschman at 80, looking 12. Jack looking wise, either 12 or a very wise infant. Jack passionate and careful. Jack tender and cruel. Jack Hirschman making the world a better place, whether it likes it or not. <laughs> I Can don't I re remember ever seeing him without a scarf. Right. He's always poetic. He always Hair had, flowing. Right. He always had the look. There was, And he always hilariously, he was from the Bronx. He always had the accent. Right. He never lost it, even though he's 88 and lived in the city for a thousand years. 
can I read the baseball one and then? Yes, please. It's not really a baseball poem, but it does reference baseball. And then you can play him because I'll, I'm not doing him any justice at all. Uh, Jack Hirschman, the baseball poem. And if I'm reading it in a funny manner, it's because it's written that way on the page. A wrist uh, to repeat with a shift of accent mood of emphasis, attentive to now needed. The wrist I lost hold of, of what was most loved as a kid. In the swing of Ted Williams, the effortlessly breaking as of the curved, way true to the mark of the stuff of Prince Hal. The poem ought to be, as love is, a style she holds out to me, to perch on the pulse of aristocratically, as I am not so, but can at will flop for sloppily to please the crowd. <laughs> there is not m many things that my poetry-minded friends in San Francisco can agree on, and I think that that's just. But there's one thing that we all uh, came to terms with today, and that's we all love Jack. Yeah. And here is Jack. Yeah, here, yeah, let me stop this so that you can play that. Okay. Here, crank that up. First one is called One Day. One day, I'm going to give up writing and just paint. I'm going to give up painting and just sing. I'm going to give up singing and just sit. I'm going to give up sitting and just breathe. I'm going to give up breathing and just die. I'm gonna give up dying and just love. I'm gonna give up loving and just write. Is that awesome? <laughs> totally smashing. Wow. I I want and I hope that there's gonna be a huge dancing party in his honor this week. In San Francisco. His wife's still there, as you know. Yes, Agnetta so, is still there. And uh, the City Lights is, of course, a bohemian bookstore that was started by Lawrence and what was the other cat? Lawrence Poingetti, well, the poet. And Peter Martin. Uh, back in the 50s to sell paperbacks. And when Jack moved to the city, I guess he gravitated there because it was the locus. North Beach was really his beat, wasn't it? Cafe Trieste, which is a super beatnik place that had been there since Day Jump. And Vesuvio's, which is across the street, across the alley, more precisely, from City Lights, uh, where there's an upstairs gallery. If you ever go to San Francisco and you want to get beatnik, you can go to City Lights, buy a book, then go to Vesuvio's, which is great to drink in in the daytime. And you can walk upstairs and there's like a balcony that runs the mm -hmm. perimeter of the room. And you kind of well, look down at everybody. What I love is we talk about... Uh, how insular San Francisco is. But when I was talking to Gent last night about Jack's perambulations, it was literally just in North Beach. But mm -hmm. obviously he, he got around town for readings, mm -hmm. but he had his, you know, his regulars. And that, the community, the community and also the, 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 the largesse, uh, landlords, taking poets in, mm. maybe charging them not so much, maybe people feeding people, uh, that kind of thing 
was, you know, it's still happening, but to a lesser degree. And this is something that we need to think about. Yeah. If you want poetry to exist in your community. You better feed the poets. Yeah, exactly. Well, his poetry uh, will live on. Also, like you say, the way he lived his life. He's not someone people remember for... He's someone people remember for his presence and being so beautiful. Well, I don't... You know, I was discussing with people yesterday, and I don't remember him ever... He was never uh, pedantic. He was never... uh, There were so many people that were just abrasive. Surely not. He, He was just... For someone that was wanting his poetry to be published, mm. he never was pressed about that. He was he was trying to make life better every day for people. He was carrying it lightly. He was just the essence of what we had all aspired to be. Mm-hmm. A real book, although too. with almost an insatiable uh, espresso. Diet. Yeah, zillions. I mean, of how much espresso can you drink? Well, if you hang out, and with I, have to, I have to add because uh, this is just sort of Jack adjacent. But I was saying to Gent that the last time we were at Cafe Trieste, which was Jack's bailiwick, right? That we were parked outside. You you went to get me a espresso, and there was a group of guys, and they they were of an age. And they seemed possibly indigent. Mm. Uh, They weren't having it. They weren't happy that there were people uh, sitting next to them. Right of our stripe, dwelling near their table. And then I realized, you know, and I thought, well, you know, no, I'm not leaving. I want to sit here and I'm going to fight. By the way, the view from Cafe Trias Sidewalk is St. Peter and Paul Church. Right. No, it's not. It's the other church. Oh. Oh, right, it's the other, you're right, it's not St. Peter Paul. And so I decided to give my uh, description yeah. of what I thought about the facade of the church. And the lead guy kind of acquiesced, thought, okay, well... You, They've been okay. hectoring us. Well, yeah, but I mean, he were inside, yeah. and, I, and so he kind of gave me a little bit uh, leeway. And then you came out, and he thought, oh, you know, okay, well, we're going to fight this a bit more. And then we laughed at the next thing they said. And I was telling Jen this, and he, he said, this is the kind of police we need. <laughs> and I thought, right. exactly. The kind of police we the, need. This is yeah. the police we need. The 68-year-old. Because they finally, yeah. like, you know, I had to really give it up yeah. in terms of I'm, I'm going to give a florid description. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to. You have to have some personality. Exactly. Don't just crumble and move tables. You, but, I mean, you have to have something. Yeah. You can't just sit down Mm-mm. Mm-mm. on well, my sidewalk. who told sidewalk? you you could sit? Right. Who right. told me you could sit? And I, I just love that Jen said that this is the police we yeah, need. Yeah, the police we need. Mm. The reason I thought of Vesuvius was you told me that Jack Hirschman would have pizza and beer with all his uh, poets up there. At Spax. Oh, at Spax, yeah. which was across the street right. from right. Vesuvia. Wow. And Spex is even, uh, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, it reminds me of a bar from Moby Dick or something with the wooden tables and the cheese wheel and the spilled <laughs> alcohol. But having that camaraderie, yeah. the, having the group of people, I mean, what 
neighborhood has a roving band of poets yeah. that might attack at any moment. <laughs> well, certainly not George Salter's uh, Knott's Berry Farm, which is the sweetest <laughs> of all berry farms. Uh, Jack Hirschman can be felt in the very vibrations all around us. Uh, I think he would want um, uh, everyone to feel love. Right. Uh, he's off. And you can see him swirling out there. You have been the smartest crowd in the world. Jennifer's been the smartest woman in the world. I've done what I could. May every page you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool papa bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're Bobby bonds. Good night, everybody.